0: Hi, this is Ken Butcher. I'm at the Barnes & Noble Bookstore at Biltmore Park, and today I'm talking with Gary Sizer. Okay, Gary, thanks for coming today, first of all, and uh, talking about your book. Actually, I saw that you have two books out. you got Where's the Next Shelter and Home is Forward. Is that out yet?
1: Um, Home is Forward is still in, I guess if it were a movie, we'd call it post-production at this point. My editor has got it, so it's coming out soon.
0: When do you think the release date will be?
1: Uh, I think it's going to be last October.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of those. uh... Okay, well, let's just start out. I want you to just tell us a little bit about where's where's the next shelter.
1: So where's the next shelter is the true story of my 2,000-mile hike from Georgia to Maine along the Appalachian Trail. Uh, I hiked the trail in 2014. And it's the kind of thing that I've, you know, I've always wanted to do for, ah, geez, I think it was probably like sometime in the early 90s, somebody told me that the Appalachian Trail existed. I had just started backpacking, and my the way I felt about backpacking was I always just wanted one more day. If I went outside for you know a week or even just a weekend or even 10 days, every time I came home, I just wanted one more day. So when I found out that there was this 2,000-mile trail that takes six months to do the whole thing, I was like, ah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. But, um, you know, I was an adult with a house and a job and you know, can't exactly just disappear for six months. So it was the kind of thing that sat on the back burner for a very long time. And in 2014, I finally, you know, after some planning and, you know, a little bit of nervousness, took the plunge, uh, quit my job, and uh, went out and hiked the trail and uh, spent the following year writing, where's the next shelter, which is the story of that hike.
0: And did you, were you basing that on a journal that you kept?
1: I was in a, in a sense, um, I kept a little notebook with me and every single day, uh, without fail, I tried to write something, even if it was just one sentence, just something I could use to, you know, trigger a memory later when it came time to actually write. So, um, you know, I did keep notes, but I, I wanted to make a special point to not have the book be journal style. So, so many books about hiking the Appalachian Trail read, like, like oh, day 42, 18 miles, oatmeal again, you know. And that's, that's, that's a good detailed look at the trail, but it's not fun. So, I wanted to write it as if it were a story. So, even though it's all true, it has characters and dialogue and, like, a plot with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, that's how I made it stand out and be different.
0: I noticed I uh, read a little excerpt from it, and it sounds like you made a couple pretty good friends on the trail. Lemmy and Megan? Tell us a little bit about them.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Lemmy and Megan are just, they're two examples of, you know, literally hundreds of interesting people who I met while I was on this on this journey. Um, Lemmy, well, let's start with Megan. Uh, Megan was, uh, when I met her, she had just graduated college. She was 22 and had a degree in anthropology and neuroscience and had never done a long backpacking trip in her life. And I don't know why, but somehow we became instant friends and just kind of stuck together through you know many miles. Um, the other person who was one of my best friends on the trail was this guy named Lemmy, and he was really there's just no one like Lemmy. He uh, when I met him, he had just finished his three years three years of mandatory service in the Israeli army. He's from Israel, and his goal in life is to be a cartoonist. So I found this former Israeli soldier turned cartoonist because he was drawing pictures in all of the trail journals. So every the shelters along the way on the Appalachian Trail have these books in them that hikers can leave notes or, you know, just, you know, put your name in it so people know how to find you. Lemmy had a whole set of colored pencils with him, and he was drawing these cartoons that told a story as you hiked. So as I was hiking behind him, I was watching his cartoon unfold, and I just thought, i got to catch this guy. i gotta, I got to meet him. He sounds really interesting. And when I you know, finally did catch up with him, uh, you know, we just became best friends, and, and we were inseparable.
0: And you brought up one thing I wanted to talk about, and you already explained it a little bit about how when you go out on the trail, stay at the shelters, which are pretty rudimentary usually. they. One thing I personally enjoyed is reading those journals every night. I wonder, do you know what happens to those journals?
1: I, I do. Um, a lot of the trail maintaining clubs will hike out to the shelters and collect the the logs after they're filled up and they will archive them. So you know, like the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club does sections in Virginia. The Carolina Mountain Club does some sections around here in North Carolina. And if you can find their their offices, usually in their headquarters, somebody has a big, you know, usually just like a milk crate or a cardboard box full of old books, but they keep them all. Um, now there is one in uh, Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, which is Harper's Ferry is where the Appalachian Trail Conservancy is headquartered. And they have a a much more detailed system for archiving, uh, you know, hikers who have passed through. But they actually take pictures of people and keep records. And, yeah, so those books and, you know, the various places that people stop along the trail uh, do a pretty good job of uh, archiving that information so future people can go and look at them.
0: They really are fascinating. And you get anything from philosophy to, you know, it rained for the 10th day. And uh, really interesting stuff. So tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of your hike. When did you start? I assume you went south to north. And so, like, when did you start? When did you finish?
1: I actually, well, I took the traditional route uh, that is northbound, starting in Springer Mountain, Georgia, and hiking north until you get to Mount Katahdin in Maine uh, some 2,000 miles later. But what I did that was different was I got a really late start. Um, Most hikers try to start in March or early April if they can uh, because, you know, it takes a while to walk all the way to Maine and you want to get to Mount Katahdin before the huge snowstorms hit and they they literally close down the mountain. You know, they they put up a gate and say, you know, too dangerous. No one can go. Uh, I started on May the 10th, which is – that is very late um, and – uh, you know, my plan was to just—I'm going to go f- as far north as I can, see how far I get, and if I run out of time, or if it looks like I'm going to run out of time, uh, just go up to Mount Katahdin and start hiking south until I get to wherever I got off the trail. They call that a flip flop, and uh, it's probably just past the halfway point when I started doing the math and realizing, like, oh, if I keep on my current pace, I'll—I'll I'll be able to make it before they close the mountain. And uh, spoiler alert: I made it uh, mm-hmm. on October the ninth. Uh, with they had like about six days left before they officially shut down Baxter State Park.
0: That was. I, I thought you were going to tell me you flipped, and because that is running late, isn't it? Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about your mindset when you went out. Were you one of the people that were said, saying, "I'm going to finish this thing if it kills me," or if you, or were you more sort of in the moment saying, "I'm just going to come out and have a good time and hike as far as I can."
1: You know, I I wouldn't say that I started out obsessed, uh, but I was definitely obsessed by the time I was done. Um, I knew that I was going to, well, I say I knew, I put air quotes around that. Nobody knows they're going to do the whole thing. There's only about a 20% success rate, but I was determined to at least attempt the whole thing, see how far I could get. And what I learned along the way about myself really was that, When certain obstacles or situations occurred, which looked like it was going to take me off the trail, I immediately just started looking for ways to stay on. You know, how can I make this not end? Uh, I had, you know, a couple of injuries that I sustained. I got sick a few times. And every single time, you know, like I got Lyme disease, I got Jardia, like some serious problems that usually end people's hikes. And all I could think of the whole time when I was recovering from those was, you know, like, okay, how soon can I get back on the trail? How soon can I get back on the trail? Uh, Quitting, I mean, quitting was never, it it sounds so cliche to say quitting was never an option. But, I mean, really, like, I never thought about it. I was just, what can I do to to keep doing this? I love it so much. Right.
0: And so what about sort of on a day-to-day mindset basis were you... Were you sort of goal-oriented? I know I've talked to people that said, I'm going to make – I'm going to do 15 miles a day no matter what. Okay, we're going to pick it up again because throngs of people just interrupted us. Uh, Fans came up. But what was I asking? I was asking day-to-day mindset. I know I talked to people with the little time I spent on the trail with my son who did the whole thing like you. But um, there would be people that said – that would say – I need to get my 15 miles in today, no matter what. And other people were just sort of in the moment and saying, "I'm gonna. I think I'll make it to the next shelter if it works out." How, how did you feel about that?
1: I wanted to be one of those guys who just woke up and said, "I'll stop wherever I stop." But because of that late start, I had to maintain an average of, uh, you know, my daily average worked out to be 14.5 miles per day, which means that, you know, of course there are days where you go zero. You have to take breaks, which means that, okay, now your daily average is actually slightly more. So um, it's weird though, because it it works out to the point where after you've been on the trail for like three or four weeks, you develop trail legs and 20 miles doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like 20 miles. It's weird. You just get up and when the sun comes up, you start walking, take a couple of breaks. You stop walking when the sun goes down and you just kind of go, oh, geez, I... I just went twenty miles. You know, it takes a, about a month or so to get to the point where that doesn't kill you every time you do it. But um, to answer your question, like for yeah, my typical day, you know, if I was on the trail and I woke up, I knew I had to do a minimum of a certain number of miles, and I just you know I did it.
0: So let's talk about some high points and low points. What what was? Uh, let's start with the low point. Like what was the what was the time you felt like maybe you were
1: the closest to saying I got to hang up my hiking shoes today funny you should mention hiking shoes because that was part of the problem Um, one of the things that you read about happening to long distance hikers is that their feet get bigger like you'll actually go up a half a size or maybe even a full size Uh, and this happened to me but i was kind of in denial about it i kept wearing the same shoes and i was compressing my feet and damaging the nerves in them very painful every time i every time i stepped it was just bolts of pain and there was nothing i could do about it because it was coming from the nerves inside my feet And this is in the middle of probably northern Virginia, so almost at the halfway point. And I reached the, you know, there was one day in particular where, you know, like I was literally crying, like real tears coming down my face because the pain was so, so severe. And this is another one of those examples. Like you would think like a normal person under those conditions would be like, okay, I'm done. I'm hanging it up. The whole time I'm like trying to find a way to get to town thinking and like, how can I get to a doctor or change? What can I change to make sure this keeps happening? But It was just, you know, that, that was, that was an agony for me. It was a really agonizing moment. You know, like my toenails were falling off. My feet were just like, just every step, like literally crying. And it was, it was torture for a day, you know, when it got to that point. And it turned out that what I really needed was, you know, bigger shoes, some time off, you know, better insoles. You know, I found the solution and I got back out there. And then two weeks later I got Lyme disease, (laughs) So, you know, it was just there were a lot of times when, you know, I had those low points. Uh, I say a lot, probably like three or four low points. But I was out there for 153 days. So if I had three or four bad days out of 153, I think that, you know, overall counts as a win. Yeah, that's not bad. Three or
0: four days out of 100. We just have a young lady came up and talked to us and and. Gary was starting to tell her about a phenomenon that happens sometimes with pe- when people get off the
1: trail. So the trail is just such—it's such an amazing, different experience from our everyday life that you know when you come back to the real world, there's this thing that you know hikers actually have a name for it. They call it post-trail depression. And if you think about it, you know you spend six months out in the woods, and. Yeah, there's going to be days where it rains, you know, and the weather's crappy and you're, you know, you're just not digging it. But the vast majority of your experience out there is you're in the sunshine, you know, and the wind is on your face constantly. And your alarm clock is the birds. You know, you wake up to birdsong every morning and you fall asleep to, you know, rushing water. And then when you're done, like you ease into that environment. And then when you're done, after you reach Mount Katahdin, you go home, you are just immediately back in the land of right angles, deadlines, and alarm clocks. And a lot of people will, you know, have a hard time, they have a harder time adjusting back to regular, quote unquote, the real world, you know, than they did teaching themselves how to wake up in the dirt every day. It's so so weird, you would think the opposite to be true, but it, it just doesn't work out that way.
0: You know, I remember my, when my son hiked the trail, one of the many things he mentioned to me, kind of along those lines, is that hiking the trail is sort of what we were evolved or designed to do as human beings. You know, we're sort of nomadic kind of animals, so the idea of getting up, run, uh, walking all day, sleeping at night, it's pretty. It's actually a pretty natural function. So it doesn't surprise me when you say its it's easier to adjust to that than to just away from it. At this point we took a little break because some of Gary's fans and readers came up and wanted to talk. But when we got back to the interview, I asked Gary about some of the high points of
1: hiking the trail. First day is exhilarating just because of you know all the potential that's laying ahead of you and you don't know what's coming. Um, the very first time you cross a state line, is an adrenaline rush. It's just the whole concept of like, I walked from one state to another. Wow. You know, it's so much fun. Um, You know, getting to Damascus is a big deal. People start talking about the town of Damascus hundreds of miles before they get there. So finally walking into that town is, you know, is an exhilaration. Um, But really, I mean, nothing compares to like the Northern 300 miles of the trail, Uh, New Hampshire and Southern Maine, the first time I set eyes on the mountains in in those places, you know, I've traveled quite a bit, and on the East Coast, I don't think I've ever seen mountains that look like that. It, it It's almost like you're on a different planet. The the whites of New Hampshire are just so breathtaking and so magnificent that, you know, just just getting to them and standing at the bottom of that first mountain is exhilarating, but, you know, by the time you get to the top of the first mountain in the whites, it's just, it's unlike anything.
0: And... and At the same time, that's one of the toughest parts of
1: the trail, if I remember right. It is. I think part of that exhilaration comes from, again, this is another one of those places, for hundreds of miles leading up to it. For weeks, hikers are getting each other pumped, you know, like, oh, we got to get ready for the whites. we got to get ready for the whites. What are we getting ready for? Well, the whites are incredibly steep. They're incredibly rugged, very rocky, and, you know, like there are literal vertical rock walls where they have hammered rebar into the rock so you can literally climb hand over hand up these things. Um, I talked earlier about how, you know, when you get your trail legs 20 miles, doesn't feel like anything. It's just a normal day to walk 20 miles. And they tell you on your way to the whites, hey, this is getting tough. It's going to be really rugged. Cut your mileage to a third not by a third to a third divide by three. That's how many miles per day you can expect to do in the whites. And without fail, every through hiker is like, ah, you're crazy. You're crazy. I'm a Superman. I could do this. And, um, you know, we, we tend to ignore those warnings. And I remember when I got to the whites, I'd been cranking out 20 to 25 miles a day. First day in the whites, seven miles. It was just, it was insane. Second day two. And the third day in the whites, zero, because we had a freak snowstorm pin us down in one of the shelters and we just couldn't leave. So, you know, three days into the whites, I was already like 40 miles behind where I wanted to be. It's just, it's nuts. But the good thing is, you're getting brutalized by this terrain. It's so beautiful the whole time. You just don't care. It's good. Hiking south to north, you've you really conditioned yourself by then, too. It's true. It's, it's actually kind of, it's a combination of, you know, you've got your trail legs, you've built yourself up, but it's also right around the time that like real fatigue starts setting in too. So it starts playing games with you mentally. You know, you've been at the top of your game and just outperforming yourself physically every single day. And then you get to this place where like, oh, geez, we're going to go zero miles today. You know, it it really, it it, mess, it messes with your your mental
0: game. You know we've mentioned a couple times in the interview so far about um, getting injured, and I remember my son talking about that and he his his take was it was a little bit hard to predict you know among your fellow hikers who was going to make it and who wasn't. There were some pretty athletic people
1: uh that would be injured. Were you ever able to sort that out? Never. (laughs) It just never made sense who was amazing at, at hiking and who wasn't. Um, you know, I, I, I knew i met a guy in, in Georgia towards the beginning of the hike who was well over 300 pounds. And by the time I met him, he had, you know, he'd been hiking for six weeks and he wasn't giving up, you know, perseverance is what's going to get you over that hill, not your light gear or your powerful leg muscles. Mm -hmm. So you got any good animal stories in the book? I have a couple, actually, yeah, there's one right on right on page one. I have my very first bear encounter three days before I even started the trail. That's how many bears I saw.
0: Any uh, did you ever
1: have an instance where you felt in danger? I did, yeah, a couple times. Um, probably the most the, the most real sense of danger that I ever experienced came from the weather on uh, my way up Mount Washington. Uh, Mount Washington's in the Whites in New Hampshire. It's world famous for having recorded the highest wind temperatures on Earth. Um, I think, you know, at one point they were pretty sure they broke the world record, but they couldn't tell because the wind had actually destroyed the instrumentation that measures it. Um, When I started my climb, it was 54 degrees and drizzling um, with a gentle breeze. And two hours later, it was 70 miles an hour sustained sideways winds with blinding rain. And a powerful gust came along and just, you know, caught my backpack like a a sail of a boat and just kind of like pushed me off to the side. And I hit the ground hard, and it was slick, wet rock, and I just started sliding towards, you know, towards a cliff. You know, the wind pushed me over and knocked me off my balance, and I was sliding towards a cliff. And it was just like one of those moments you see in a movie, like I caught myself on a root, you know? Like it it was like, okay i'm going to go back down and try this one tomorrow,
0: so we talked a little bit about i don't know if it was online or offline about trail names. Your name was Green Giant, right, so talk a little bit about trail names, what were some of the ones that you heard, and why why do you what's the the basis of that whole tradition you think
1: well, n- nobody's sure exactly where trail names came from, but it's kind of like I wouldn't go quite as far as saying you're taking on an alias or maybe a new persona. It's kind of like when you join an online forum and you have to come up with a screen name. You know, just something to be known by among the other people who are doing the same thing that you're doing. Um, The tradition is usually that... You know, your trail name has to be given to you by someone on the trail. You know, if you show up with your own trail name, you know, it's usually kind of like, I'm going to be, you know, Hawkeye or I'm going to be, I'm going to be lightning bolt or, you know, it's usually something cool. But the reality is trail names usually come from, you know, like some kind of story or screw up or something that, you know, the person did. There's tons of people out there whose trail names are like, oh, there's a bunch of people named Wrong Way, a bunch of people named Broken Poles, you know. Uh, I was called Green Giant because I'm uh, six foot three and all of my gear was green on the day that somebody gave me my my name, my shoes, my socks, my shirt, everything green. Um, You know, Lemmy didn't develop a trail name. Some people just never get him. We just called him by his real name the whole way. Uh, Let's see. I had a friend named Ninja Mike because he was a martial arts instructor. Uh, I had a friend whose name was Tupac because when somebody gave him his trail name, he was hiking with his mother and she couldn't make it up a trail or a hill, so he was carrying her backpack in addition to his own. So he was just known as Tupac for the rest of the hike. So, you know, some of them are really on the nose and obvious, you know, like, oh, they called him Two Pack because he was carrying two packs. Other ones are kind of weird, you know, like you'll meet somebody whose trail name is like, you know, Nemo or, you know, Rogue or something like, oh, there's got to be a story there, but most of the fun is meeting those people and finding out what the stories are. I remember a friend of my
0: friend of my son's his trail name was miss teenage america this really rough looking bearded guy let me turn to the nerdy side of the uh, equation here for the real for the real hiking buffs we got to talk a little bit about equipment so um and i understand you give classes and talked a lot so um give someone that's not too familiar just a little
1: encapsulation of what you need so there's a, a pretty small list of bare essentials that you want to take with you on a long hike like this. Okay. We're talking about like, you know, if you're doing the Appalachian trail or some hike that's going to take months and it's 2000 miles, you know, obviously you want your gear to be as light as possible. If you're just going out for a weekend or a couple of days, you know, you can be a little bit more forgiving and bring more luxuries, you know, like a folding chair, you know, or a pillow or something that, you know, but on a 2000 mile hike like this, um, you really want to cut down like every unnecessary ounce possible. So the general rule that I tell people is when you're you know, packing for something like this, if it doesn't help you walk, if it doesn't help you sleep, or if you can't eat it, it doesn't belong in your pack just those three things. So in my backpack, what I've got, uh, I've got a very small tent. I mean, very small, uh, like just enough room for one person to lie down. I can lie down on my back and sit up and that's about it. Don't need a lot of space because I'm not spending a lot of time in my tent. I'm walking all day. My tent is only for sleeping. So smallest, lightest tent possible. Um, sleeping bag is obviously very important. You want to stay warm. Actually, let me back up a second. The tent is not strictly necessary. Um, it is advisable to bring some kind of a shelter. If you don't have a tent, bring at least a tarp or a hammock or something. Uh, you need to have some kind of shelter. There are shelters built along the trail. They're just three walled wooden structures with a water source that you can sleep in. And that's it. So carry a shelter because you're never sure that you're going to stop at one of these ready-made shelters. Um, sleeping bag. There's a couple of different kinds of sleeping bags that you can take. Uh, the two most popular are down and synthetic, right? And down is just, you know, goose feathers or duck feathers. And it's great because it's highly compressible. You can squish it down, make it really small, and it doesn't weigh very much. But the downside <laughs> the downside to a down sleeping bag is that if it gets wet, it's pretty much ruined. Um, a synthetic bag would be you know, a little heavier, a little bulkier, but you could literally like sleep in the rain with it and it will still keep you warm. So you got your tent, you've got your sleeping bag and you need something to keep you up off the ground, like a foam pad or an air mattress, or just like some, you know, just something that you can inflate to put a little bit of insulation in between you and the ground. So those are your three big things that you need uh, in your pack. A little bit of food, a little bit of water, spare set of clothes, first aid kit, doesn't sound like much, but that's literally all you need. Okay,
0: now uh, let me switch gears here a little bit. We haven't talked much about Home Is Forward, your next book, which will come out sometime between last October and uh,
1: uh, pre- like March, yeah. probably March. Tell us a little bit about that book and what to expect in that. Well, they you know they always say that the first book is the hardest one to write, so I wrote my second book first with Where's the Next Shelter. Um, Home is Forward has actually been uh, in draft for probably like 10 or 15 years, and it's a collection of stories uh, that I've been keeping as, uh, you know, I've traveled uh, not just on the Appalachian Trail or not just within the States, but I've traveled quite a bit. Uh, You know, I've been hiking in Peru and Newfoundland and uh, Australia, uh, India, and Iceland and, you know, a bunch of other places like that. And I've been accumulating stories from all of those trips. And I think I finally have enough that I can put them together. And even though they happened over many years and over many different places, I found a way to connect them and tell one story with all these different little trips. So it's another it's another travel adventure. But this one, we're going to go to a lot more places than just the East Coast.
0: Okay. And before we let you go, I definitely want to get uh, people the information on how to keep
1: track of what's your website so it's real easy uh, garysizer.com will point you to everything else uh, you know where's the next shelter.com uh, my facebook my twitter all of that stuff is you know if you just go to garysizer.com that's you know the one stop shop that'll get you get you to all these other places okay well thanks a lot
0: gary i really appreciate you doing this and best of luck with the book and and the next book too
1: it's been a real pleasure thank you so much ken
0: Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Gary and to the people at the Barnes & Noble bookstore at Biltmore Park. To listen to other episodes and to subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website at themiddleoftheair.com.